Well, the book of Exodus, friends, is immensely important. Feels weird to say that about a book of the Bible, uh, but it's true. It's true. It's hard to overstate the importance of this book in the history of Judaism and what would become Christianity. If you know of the famous Dead Sea Scrolls, only Genesis, the Psalms, and Isaiah outnumber the book of Exodus in terms of copies found at the site. To illustrate the importance of this book, before we go any further, I want to note a couple of quotes by some prominent biblical scholars. There's an Old Testament scholar and then a New Testament scholar. The first reads, it's clear that the Exodus story was read and reread often in ancient Israel. The story makes a claim of intense particularity, but a particularity that invites rereading in a variety of circumstances and contexts. The compilers of the Exodus tradition understood from the outset that this story is not mere historical reportage. It is rather intended to be remembered, represented, and reenacted in other times, places, and contexts. Similarly, another scholar writes, the Exodus was never merely an event which happened a certain number of years ago to the ancestors of the Israelites. It was recalled, retold, reenacted from generation to generation in the Passover ritual. It became a symbol of what God had done in the past, what God is doing in the present, and what God will do in the future. The Exodus was and is absolutely central to Jewish identity. Friends, the Exodus is arguably the most identity-shaping story in Israel's history. And as Christians, members of God's people, his covenant family, it's identity-shaping for us as well. So over the next nine weeks, we're going to be looking at selections from the book of Exodus. And what I want to do is read Exodus self-consciously from a Christian perspective. So what does a Christian reading of Exodus look like? What insights emerge as we read Exodus through the life of Christ and the life of the church? Now, I don't intend to ignore the original historical context of this document, but I want us to read it as the church and for the church. So that is my plan for the whole series, and especially for our message this morning. But before we go any further, friends, let's take a moment to pray. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for your faithfulness during this season of ordinary or measured time. Lord, we've been through series that were shorter, a bit more dramatic. We think of Advent, Epiphany, and Lent. And now we're in this long stretch of real life. In a marathon, those long stretches between the runner's highs And that is what makes up the majority of our lives, Lord. 
So please be with us as we continue to journey with you, as we walk with the patriarchs and figures in Israel's history, and help us, Lord, to locate ourselves within this story, our story. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you haven't already, would you turn with me to Exodus chapter 1? Exodus chapter 1. And you can see in the bulletin that we're jumping around just a little bit. I tried to excerpt the passage from the lectionary because it was a bit long, so really we're just skipping from verse 10 to verse 15, and the rest stays the same. So Exodus chapter 1, uh, we will start at verse 8 and end up at chapter 2, verse 10. So as you are able, friends, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. You may be seated. (sighs) 
What I'd like to do over the next few minutes, friends, is first look at this story in its original Hebrew context, focusing on how this story would have been heard, received, used in its original ancient Israelite setting. And then what I want to do is look at two passages in the New Testament which I think represent this material, almost reenact it for us, before closing with some words of application and hope for us today. So let's jump in then at the beginning of our passage in Exodus 1 verse 8. We just finished a series in Genesis, and at the end of Genesis, you may recall that Joseph one of the sons of Jacob, whose brothers are the 12 tribes, Joseph enjoyed a rather privileged position in Egypt, second in command under Pharaoh. So Joseph was rather high up, and he had a good relationship with the king of Egypt, with Pharaoh at the time. He even secured a peaceful existence for his family, for his brothers and their families in Goshen. And they were allowed to work as shepherds, in relative security and peace. But here we see Joseph is long deceased, and the Pharaoh with whom Joseph shared a good relationship has been replaced by somebody else. And so the people of Israel experience a rather precarious, fragile position. Whereas they were once secure and stable in the land, now they are perceived as a threat And we see that the king of Egypt employs several strategies to respond to this threat that is Israel. The first strategy we didn't actually read about, but is probably the most popular in this story, and that is oppressing the Israelites through forced labor. And so the Egyptian government starts these massive building projects and enlists the Israelites as workers to make that happen. It's hard to know exactly how that would neutralize the threat, Um, maybe to just demoralize them or discourage them through such labor. But the second strategy is more practical and definitely more gruesome. We read about this in verses 15 through 22, and that strategy is population control, forced abortion or infanticide. And we see that in verse 17, these midwives, probably directors of many midwives in Egypt, these midwives are told that if the baby born to Hebrew parents is a boy, they must kill him. But it says that they refuse to carry out this command because they feared God. Now, friends, we're in Exodus 1. The Ten Commandments aren't even given until Exodus 20. There's no temple, no tabernacle, no Torah. There's no established religion. There's no code of morality that's written down. Yahweh has progressively revealed bits and pieces of his nature to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and these midwives, it seems. They possess enough of an understanding of God's heart that they know that this command by the king 
is wrong. And they refuse to carry it out. This is striking. Jumping a little bit to chapter 2, verse 1, we see a new beginning, a section break in the beginning of a new episode. A man from the house of Levi took as his wife a Levite woman, reading about the beginnings of this Levite family. And we need to interpret this in the context of what was just said, this rife political situation in which Pharaoh is trying to neutralize the threat of Israel and is killing babies. And then we see that a male child is born. What are you thinking when you read that? So we get a kind of new beginning in chapter 2, and it says that this woman conceives and bears a son. There's a red flag. It's a male child. And she saw that he was a fine child. In Hebrew, the word is tov, tov. And we were just in Genesis. We didn't look at this passage in depth, but there's a passage in the beginning of Genesis that uses the word tov an awful lot. And God created the heavens and the earth and the dry land and the sea and the animals and human beings, and he saw that they were tov. He saw that they were good. Creation. We get a new beginning here. A new family, a special family. And we get the word tov. She sees that he was good. In addition to this, it says in verse 3 that after she could hide him no longer, she, the mother that is, carries out the command of Pharaoh, at least partially, and starts to build, it says, a basket for the boy to indeed put him into the Nile. But this isn't the normal word that's used for basket in the Hebrew Bible. This is the same word that's used in Genesis 9 to refer to Noah's ark. A baby ark. We get new beginning language. The child is good, and he's placed in an ark that is literally sealed with the same materials that Noah sealed the ark with, bitumen and pitch. And there, the floodwaters of turbulent judgment overwhelmed the earth in Genesis 9, and here the Nile, full of crocodiles, a symbol of judgment in the Hebrew mentality, functions in the same way. Baby Moses placed in a mini ark on these waters that flooded every year in Egypt. The waters of the Nile. And we see that the baby cries. This is the only time in the Hebrew Bible where a baby is said to cry fragile, vulnerable beginning to the story of Moses. But a new beginning, I think new creation. These are all guesses as readers. In case you, if you know the story, you know how it goes. But at this point, we are catching signals that the text provides. And I think we ought to imagine a new beginning for Israel. If you move on, there's rich irony in verses 5 through 6. Uh, Pharaoh commanded that the, the boys born to Hebrew parents were to be killed by being thrown into the Nile. And then we have Pharaoh's daughter seeing a Hebrew boy on the Nile, pulling him out 
to make sure he doesn't die. It's literally the opposite of what her father commanded that she does. We see strategy. The sister of Moses, who perhaps is Miriam, who we'll read about later, is positioned at the riverbank to see what would happen. And she's right there to suggest this great solution to the daughter of Pharaoh. Why don't you hire a wet nurse for this boy? I know someone. The mother of Moses, who was supposed to give her baby up to be killed, ends up getting paid to nurse her own child. And then we see that the would-be liberator of Israel, the revolutionary who would cause plagues upon Pharaoh, is raised in Pharaoh's very own palace. (laughs) Irony, irony, irony. The story of Moses, the Moses to whom God gave the law, the Moses who signals toward Jesus, one of the most significant characters in Israel's history. The story of Moses begins with fragility and vulnerability, placed in a basket, crying on a river, the Nile River. But it also begins with hope raised in a royal palace by Pharaoh's daughter. And friends, that is the basic shape of the story we have in Exodus. Now what I want to do is look at two New Testament texts which I think represent this material to us. And the first passage comes at the beginning of the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew. And you can turn there if you'd like, Matthew chapter 2. There are four Gospels in the New Testament. Three of them look very similar, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is a bit different. But the Gospel of Matthew is the only one to include this story about the family of Jesus going down to Egypt and coming back. The only one to include this story about Herod at the time commanding that all the Hebrew boys were to be killed. Sound familiar? So Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to read from verse 13 to about verse 20, some selections, and then I just want to note a few points of similarity with our passage in Exodus. It says, Now when they had departed, that is, Jesus had been born, and the holy family was leaving the stable manger place where he was born, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, Joseph is his name, in a, a dream, So we have Joseph in dreams, interesting, and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Jump to verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life, are dead. So friends, here we have 
a ruler commanding that baby boys be killed. We have the mention of Egypt. We even have a transition of power. From Genesis to Exodus, there's one Pharaoh, then another, who knows Joseph and then doesn't. We have a transition of power even here. The wise men, who feature slightly in this text, but come more prominently before, through whose wisdom the Holy Family was preserved, parallel the wise women in Exodus, the midwives. Friends, we have all these parallels in Matthew. And still, it's the only gospel that tells the story this way. I don't doubt that this happened historically, but it's striking that only Matthew chooses to narrate the story of Jesus in a way that perfectly mimics that of Moses. And he does it all throughout his gospel. This is important, literarily, theologically. The story of Jesus is told just like the story of Moses. The points that I want to draw from this similarity is, one, God's plan in Exodus to liberate the people of Israel from Egypt, and in Matthew to liberate the world from the powers of sin and death. God's plan has a fragile human beginning, vulnerable beginning. God, it seems, takes a kind of risk, almost, in letting so much ride on the morality of the midwives, on the wisdom and sensitivity of the wise men, and Joseph in choosing to leave Israel according to a dream he had. We see that the story of Jesus, the Savior of the world, is told just like the story of Moses. And there's one more passage that I want to look at that connects the dots even further. So that is in the beginning of the New Testament. This text comes at the end of the New Testament in a book that we love to read for daily devotions. That is the book of Revelation, friends. It's in chapter 12. It may be a text you're not as familiar with, but I think it strikingly represents this material So Revelation chapter 12, I'll read most of the chapter, but jumping around a little bit. And this is not narrative, this is not poetry, this is what's called apocalyptic literature. So it's purposely written with symbolism that the reader is supposed to interpret, and I'll try to do that for you this morning. It says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, And on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Jump to verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Verse 15. The serpent 
poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Notice any similarities? It's tempting to draw a connection between the woman here and Moses' mother, or Jesus' mother, the Virgin Mary. But many scholars think that the woman here represents Israel, Lady Zion, the people of God. And that the child born to this woman is none other than the Messiah, born among the people Israel for, first, the people Israel. And we see that this dragon, this serpent, represents In many ways, Herod and Pharaoh, these earthly powers, perhaps Nero at the time of the writing of Revelation, but also Satan, the powers of sin and death, these spiritual forces that try to thwart God's plan. We see that the woman and her child, so Israel and the Messiah, are vulnerable, fragile, but that they're protected by God, nurtured, preserved. And in the end, it says that the dragon, the dragon goes after the church, the siblings of Messiah Jesus, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of his son, Jesus. We've seen in Exodus that the story of Israel begins in fragility, vulnerability, that there are earthly powers trying to thwart God's plan that the family of Moses is protected and preserved. And we see with the story of Jesus, the same thing, the same pattern. And friends, the same thing is said of the church. The church is enveloped, you could say, in the same struggle, the same cosmic struggle. And like the readers of Exodus, like the readers of Matthew, we, we are being urged to endure. If we zoom out now and we look at Exodus and its reverberations in these two texts, we see a vulnerable people in a hostile land in Egypt. We see a peasant couple hunted by a king. And we see a laboring woman and a newborn child pursued by a dragon. Just as the Exodus is meant to construct and define the identity of Israel as a people, these stories, these interpretations of Exodus are meant to define our identity as the church. Friends, we exist within this story, not outside of it, we're part of it. The story that began with this little baby in a basket on the river A story that continues with the flight of this poor family down to Egypt and back again. And a story that I think culminates in a cosmic conflict where the powers of sin and death fail to thwart God's plan. It's tempting for me to focus on Moses, the midwives, Pharaoh, 
But friends, I just have to focus on God. The, the script, the cast, the setting of these stories, they change. You can fill in the blanks differently. But the one unchanging element throughout all these stories is God, Yahweh. And because God is God, because he's transcendent, he's other than us, that means he can be fully and completely active while we make the most ordinary of decisions. This dynamic began in in Genesis, and it definitely continues in Exodus, friends. We've got this small decision to put a baby in a sealed basket, not in the open river, but in the reeds. We've got this decision to post the baby's sister as lookout by the river. The decision to respond to a dream that could have been nothing but to move your family elsewhere for a time. Many small decisions, freely undertaken, but infused infused with divine purpose. Look at the sweep of the Bible's narrative, and you'll see characters who, like Moses at first, are small, unnoticed, underprivileged. Characters making modest choices, ordinary choices, which in the end have universal effects. My question is, what about us? If we're part of this story, what about us? I would say that we as Christians live in a world as enchanted with God's presence as that of Moses. A world as extraordinary as that of Mary and Joseph. As apocalyptic as that of the author of Revelation. This means that while on the surface of things, everything may seem hopeless, bleak, terrible, but if God is involved, and I'll tell you, He is involved, if God is involved, anything, anything can happen, friends. Moses, the great leader of Israel, who talked with God on the mountain and received his law, started as a baby in a basket in the reeds. Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world, started as a peasant baby whose family fled in desperation to Egypt. The church exists in the same line, in the same story. Which means that no matter how tragic, how humble, how painful our lives are, infused with God's life, we can change the world. I truly believe that. My prayer for you all this season is that you would see your story as part of God's story. As you go about your lives then, dealing with the ordinary, dealing with the painful, I want you to recall these stories. And friends, there's tons of them. And I want you to remember that it's precisely in the ordinary and the painful 
that God does his best work. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for everything, what we're aware of and what we'll never be aware of. You still do it. We praise you for it. Help us to embody in our lives, to embody our gratitude for you, to give our lives as living sacrifices because that is the least, the least we can do in response. Jesus, you came as a new Moses to save us. And you have given us the same task. Use us, Lord, to preach and embody your message of hope to this world that needs it. And help us amidst the fragile position we experience today to trust you that you will bring life. We love you and pray that you would continue to be with us this morning and as we move forward in this season. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.